You're listening to a message from Third Church in Richmond, Virginia, where we believe we are called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. To learn more about Third or how you can get involved with our community, please check out our website, thirdrva.org. That's T-H-I-R-D-R-V-A dot org. Thanks for listening. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Spirit, we thank you and praise you that you have given us so much kindness, mercy, and grace that you have revealed yourself through your son, Jesus Christ, and that we do have the scriptures and they bear witness, all of them bear witness to him. So would you now illumine this time of reading and preaching of your word through the power of your spirit, that we'd be those who actually could receive it and, and, and not just receive it in our minds, but in our souls, and that we'd respond to your word with obedience and love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's be seated. Well, good morning again, dear church family. Um, We are in this new series that we're going to be in this fall, studying one of the wisdom books in the Bible called the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, And we're calling this book, um, this series, How to Be Human, Um, Ecclesiastes and the Search for Meaning, um, because that's the essential question of this book is how, what does it mean to live a good life? What does it mean to live a meaningful life as a human being in a world as confusing and befuddling as the one that we live in? Um, And so uh, we get into chapter two today. So if you want to open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter two, verses one through 11, um, Rick's going to read to us. And I would invite you to listen as God's word is read. Hear God's word from Ecclesiastes two, one through 11. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. And all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. This is God's word. One of the reasons why I I think this is such a a timely book for our particular kind of moment in time is because you could say that this book in some ways is the most secular of any book in the Bible. You know, we use the word secular in some ways to just simply mean like irreligious or non-religious. But if you go back and look at the origins of the Middle English origin of that word, um, secular just means of this present world. So secular is a perspective that restricts itself to reality only in this present existence, right? This present world and nothing beyond it. 
Uh, you could say this is what John Lennon is singing about um, in his famous song, Imagine. Uh, you know that song from the Beatles? He says, uh, he sings, imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us, only sky. Lennon is saying, look, look let's just imagine uh, that this is really all there is. That there's nothing beyond this physical frame. Uh, there's no heaven, there's no hell, there's no God. Let's imagine that together. And what's interesting is that we don't really have to imagine that anymore because Western civilization is now the most secular civilization in human history. Like every civilization up to this point, whether Western or Eastern, whether pre-modern uh, or ancient, whether uh, Christian, uh, Buddhist, uh, uh, Muslim or, or Taoist, every one of these has in some ways built their foundation on an understanding that there is a transcendent spiritual reality beyond the physical realm. But we are the first civilization to abandon the concept of transcendent reality entirely. And so that doesn't mean that we don't have religion. There's lots of religious people in our society. America is still a very religious society. But what it means is on the whole, that the way our society sees the world, the way that we understand the world, explain the world, govern the world, that we do all of this within a secular frame. Does that make sense? That we only take seriously what we can measure empirically with our five senses and nothing beyond it, right? We have moved on from appeals to the divine or the supernatural to try to understand or explain the world or what it means to be human. This is it. This is it. This is all there is, right? We are a society that is trying to make sense of human existence when this is all there is. And guess what? That's why Ecclesiastes is so relevant to the moment of time that we're living in, because even though Kohelet is a believer in God, he is clearly a cynic. He's a skeptic. Maybe he has moments where he wonders whether there's anything out there beyond our physical reality at all, right? So like many moderns, he is trying to figure out if there is any meaning within what he calls life under the sun. Is there meaning just within the secular frame? Can we find meaning without reference to God, without reference to any significant spiritual reality beyond our physical world, right? Let's imagine, like Lenin, that this is all there is, that you're born, you live a few years, and then you die. If that's true, what is life for? What does it mean to be human if all we have is this? Maybe you've wondered that. Maybe you're like Lenin and you believe that religion has kind of done more harm than good and we're better off without it. That's a really compelling argument. How do you find meaning then? Uh, maybe you're a skeptic and you sometimes find yourself wondering if there really is anything out there. If this really is all there is. I, I find myself in that place often. Uh, maybe you're a Christian, but you wonder if our faith really says anything meaningful to a world in which our faith seems to be increasingly irrelevant, like whether there is actually anything that our faith has to say in a world that's as complex as ours. So this, there's hardly any book that is more relevant to answer these questions because we're all human and we're all trying to figure out how to find meaning in this befuddling world, right? Hello? Yes. Okay, so that brings us to our topic today. Are you all listening to me? Yes. Kohelet has begun his experiment, right? He's begun his experiment. How do I find meaning in life under the sun? 
right, within the secular frame. How do I find meaning? He started with wisdom. He said, maybe wisdom is the key to meaning in life. Did that work for him, class? No, it did not. And so now he's going to turn to his next experiment, which is pleasure, pleasure. He says, maybe the good life is less about living by the right rules, and it's more about happiness and having a good time. Maybe it's less about following the right principles for living and more about just maximizing pleasure. Maybe pleasure is what gives meaning to life under the sun. Ready? Let's join him in his experiment, okay? So first, the pursuit of pleasure. Look at verse one. He says, I thought in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. Okay, so Kohelet has come to the conclusion, life is brutal, nasty, short, meaningless. If that's the case, could pleasure actually be a way that I could find a worthwhile and meaningful life? And so what he decides to do is to use all of his very considerable resources, all of his wealth and his power and his networks and everything. He's going to use all of this to try to consume as much pleasure as he possibly can. And verse 2 through 10 is a description of his experiments, okay? And so let's look at it together. So verse 2 through 3, he starts out. Um, by just kind of throwing some unbelievably epic parties. You could call this like his frat boy years, verses two and three, right? So like, uh, first he goes for humor, verse two. Humor, this is not like just joke telling. I imagine him like bringing in the very best comedians in the ancient world. He's not just like streaming Netflix specials. He's like bringing in Chris Rock and Dave Chappelle, like right into his palace to have them like perform live every night for his friends, right? And then verse two says, verse three, alcohol is just running, like a river. And he doesn't mention food, but if it's anything like the parties that Solomon throws, which are described in 1 Kings 4, he brings in hundreds of cattle and sheep and fowl throwing parties for probably, scholars estimate, 15 to 20,000 people a night. These are the most like lavish banquets and open bars and live music and comedy, everything. Y'all, oh my gosh, this is like, this is no kegger. This is no house party. This is no backyard barbecue. This is like the most epic parties you can imagine night after night after night, okay? That's verses two and three. Well, eventually, I think he gets tired of the hangovers and the regrettable tattoos. And so verse four through seven, he starts growing up a bit, right? And he decides, you know what? I need to grow up a little bit. So I'm gonna build a legacy for myself. And so what does it say in verses four through seven? He builds gardens and parks and pools, and houses, and forests. Notice it does not say house. It says houses, right? He's got a house in Jerusalem, and one in Reno, and one in the Italian Riviera, and they all have six-car garages, and irrigated gardens, and a staff of hundreds, right? He is living it up. And finally, you know, after this years and years of building all of this amazing, opulent wealth and lifestyle, he decides, verse eight and nine, that he maybe wants to just kind of slow down and start enjoying this amazing life that he's built for himself. Maybe he hires an executive director or a managing partner to kind of take care of everything, and he doesn't need any more money because he's got so dang much of it. And so at this point, he just is the envy of the most powerful people in the world, and he's ready to just enjoy life. And so verse 8, he brings in music, right? Not just like streaming his favorite bands. He's like, you know, brings in Kendrick Lamar or James Taylor or Taylor Swift, whatever your preference is. Like he's just bringing them in having them perform live for his friends every night. Verse eight, it says he has a harem. We know that Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. So probably something in that vicinity. This guy is going after every single sexual fantasy in the book. 
Verse nine, it says he enjoyed a stellar reputation. He's greater than anyone else, right? Everybody wants to be at his parties. Everybody wants to be at his events and everybody wants him at theirs. He is the most popular guy in the world. And so literally we come to the end of verse 10 and he has done everything. He's done it as a young man. He's done it as a middle-aged man. He's done it as an older seasoned man. He's gone the low brow route. He's gone the high brow route. He's gone Jersey Shore. He's gone succession, right? Like he's done everything from top to bottom. He has tried it all out. And it says in verse 10, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. I refused nothing. And what's interesting though is all of this, even as wild as it got, he claims at least that he was pursuing it all thoughtfully. Um, Verse three, he says that wisdom was guiding him this whole time. In verse nine, he assures us his wisdom remained with him. And so in other words, y'all, this really was an experiment. He really was like testing out to discover if the pleasures of life really can bring meaning and satisfaction to his life. And so after all of this pursuit, this incredible thorough and shall we say fully immersive research, um, what does he discover? Verse 11, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. So what's the problem? Seriously, I mean, you know, Jimmy Buffett just died and people have been writing tributes about him. And, you know, here's a guy who decided that the best meaning in life was to chill in Key West and drink margaritas and just party. And it actually seemed to work out pretty well for him, right? So what's the problem? Well, the problem is, is that pleasure never delivers on the expectations that we have for it, right? If, if you're looking for real meaning and purpose in life, then pleasure might distract you. Uh, and it probably is really fun, But in the end, it's not long before you're faced with the deep emptiness of the pursuit. So if you think about it, as humans, what we're doing is we're never just after pleasure. We're always loading hopes. We're always trying to load meaning onto the pursuit of pleasure. We're not just after a good time, we're after meaning. So for example, the pleasure of humor, it's fun, but but we're not just enjoying the joke. What we're enjoying is the deep joy of connecting through laughter with another right? That's what we're after. Or when you drink, you're not just after a buzz, you're after the sense of relief it brings or the comfort it offers or the high or the easier time it gives you connecting with the people around you, right? When we accumulate, it's never just about the stuff. You know, on some level, I think we actually believe deep down that I would actually be satisfied that more of it can make my life meaningful. So next time you watch a car commercial, just notice what what is being displayed in the car commercial because they're never just telling you facts and figures about the car, They're not just offering you steel on wheels. What are they offering you? An experience. Like they're they're tapping into your imagination so that you can imagine yourself enjoying this drive and you're sitting next to this beautiful person and you're in this gorgeous landscape or you're having an adventure, right? They're they're offering you not just a car, but a a meaningful life. Or, um, or, Or music or we're not just after a pleasant sound, right? Tom York of Radiohead, once said this, a good piece of music is like knocking a hole in the wall so that you can see on another place you didn't know existed. Every good piece of music or art keeps you from feeling trapped. Right? That's what art does. It's for transcendence. Or sex. What are we after? 
You know, G.K. Chesterton famously said, every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. Because what he's after is not just pleasure. He's after what the sex points to. He's after connection, intimacy, beauty, love. So, so all of these things are more than just pleasure-seeking. It's a search to make our lives worthwhile, to hold back despair, right? To manufacture meaning. See, because we live in a society, it's so ironic because we live in a society that has done away with any sense of great meaning or purpose in the world. And yet, as a human, you have to have meaning to live, Right? We all carry within us a deep craving for meaning. As American writer and social critic Andrew Delbanco puts it, we carry, quote, an unslaked craving for transcendence. We all carry that. And if this really is all there is, then we need something. We need something to give us a deeper sense of meaning and purpose and transcendence because you can't live without it. And pleasure is a seriously good substitute for God because it offers all of this stuff to relieve pain and to amplify happiness, and to connect you with beauty and transcendence, and to unite you with beautiful things, and pleasure promises so much. But as Kohelet discovers, it's an empty promise. The experience of pleasure cannot deliver, and it always disappoints. Now, a lot of y'all are good church people, and, and you can say in your heads, oh yeah, I know all this. Amen, preacher. Yeah, pleasure's bad, you know? We've all, you know, but yeah, we've all experienced this problem to some degree. Kids, you have, right? You know, you remember, you know what Christmas this morning is like? It's so awesome. And you're so excited about that thing that you have looked for and wanted for and wished for and waited for. And then what happens? You get it and it's so awesome. And in two weeks, you're bored, right? And adults are like this too. You know, that new iPhone, when you unbox it, it is so numinous and gorgeous, right? And now you're just counting down the days for your upgrade, Right? <laughs> Or that top you bought at that amazing sale, which seemed exactly the piece that you needed in your clothing. And then, you know, now it's just mixing in in the closet with everything else. Or that person in your life. You remember when you first held their hand and that shot of electricity went through you? Well, now that person, they're just there. Right? 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 So, I mean, we all know this. We all know this problem of pleasure. It's this diminishing returns, right? It's our biggest problem. And yet deep down... I mean, even as Christians, deep down, we still think that somewhere out there is the ultimate hit. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you a, a really pathetic story about myself. So about a month ago, I ordered a new pair of glasses. I'm at that age where, like, my prescription changes every six months. And so, like, <laughs> I need a pair of glasses. And so I, I went online, and my 16-year-old helped me, and I picked out a really cool pair of glasses that I thought were, like, really hip, right? And so on Monday, I got a notice that the glasses had shipped, and I got a tracking number. And so I was really excited, and I checked the tracking number, and I just kept checking it as it got closer and closer to my house. And I started checking it in, like, meetings and stuff at church and work and that sort of thing. And then one day, I think it was, I think it was Wednesday, I got the notice that it had arrived at my house. And so I think I made an excuse, and I went home early to get my new glasses. And then I discovered they weren't there, that the U.S. Postal Service had delivered it to the wrong address, which was quite distressing. So I called the company, and then I called the U.S. Postal Service. They didn't know anything. So then I texted all my neighbors. They didn't know. So I got on the Facebook page of my neighborhood and I messaged all of them. And then I just got in my car and drove around my neighborhood and looked at all of people's front porches. And two days later, when all I could think about was my lost glasses, my neighbor knocked on my door and I opened it and she said, I think this might be yours. And I acted very calm. I said, oh, thank you very much. And then I took it and I opened it up and I put the glasses on my face and they were so weird. Right? Like they didn't even fit. 
And I mean, y'all, this literally happened as I was writing this sermon about the pursuit of pleasure. That is how duped we are. That is how tricked we are that you can literally be writing a sermon about this and be tricked. And we're all, we all are. We all are. 10 years ago, you probably had a picture in your mind of what you wanted your life to look like. And maybe you couldn't have articulated it, but you had it. And you, and you might have never been able to describe it, but you thought when you got there that you would be happy. And it involved, you know, maybe being out of school or getting married or having kids or having, you know, enough money or the car, or the promotion or the retirement. But we all carry an imagined future that we believe deep down will make us happy. Mine clearly involves glasses, right? <laughs> but, you know, at some point along the way, guess what? You actually get some of those things and you're not happy. And so, and so somehow in your subconscious, you start developing a new 10-year plan. And you say, okay, it must be this. And then you go after that. And then you get there and then you develop a new 10-year plan and then another one and then another one, another one, and then you die. Seriously. Almost all of us, whether we admit it or not, have bought into this, that what we finally need to get us happy is more of what we already have. It's why we shop, it's why we consume, it's why we buy things that we don't need or already have, it's why we break up with this person to get with that person, it's why we need that other vacation or this car or that experience. It's why we can literally be the wealthiest, most comfortable community and society of people on the planet that has ever lived in all studies show we are the most miserable. Do you know what Kohelet says about this? It's madness. We're literally acting like crazy people, right? We just keep feeding on the lie that we'll get there. And here's the gift that Kohelet offers to us, right? You typically handle the problem of pleasure by just going after the next thing, thinking that that one will deliver. But the gift of Kohelet is that we actually get to hear from a person who got all the way to the end. He tried everything, right? Every kind of pleasure imaginable. Very few of us, I dare say none of us, have the resources to do what Kohelet did, to literally hold back nothing, right? We're, we just, when we're restless, we think, well, I just need to get further down the road. Well, guess what, y'all? He got all the way to the end of the road and it was a dead end. He been to the top. He's had every hit. He's experienced it all. He ran out of fantasies and he has come back to tell us, y'all, there's nothing there. And you know what? Every other person who is in his position says the same thing. All those movie stars, all those people on the glossy magazines and in the grocery store, read their biographies, read interviews that they give. I'll never forget, you know, seeing Tom Brady on 60 Minutes after he won the third Super Bowl and him saying to the 60 Minute interviewer, why do I have three Super Bowl rings? And I feel like there's got to be more than this. Right? Or Boris Becker, after he won his third Grand Slam, a reporter asked him, what's now your greatest challenge? And he said, my greatest challenge is thinking of a good reason not to kill myself. Or Jack Higgins, who sold 50 million, million copies of his famous novel on World War II. Up to that point, the best-selling novel of the 20th century. And he said, I wish I had known then what I know now, that when you get to the top, there's nothing there. See, the reason that these people are so disillusioned and so devastated is because they are no longer living with the illusion that we all still carry. They actually got the dream. They got the fantasy. They got the thing that we dream about. They got all the way to the end 
and they realize emptiness, nothing. It's not that pleasure isn't fun. It's that it fails to deliver the meaning that we need. It fails to give us what we're after. You search and you go and you go and then you realize one day you are living for nothing. That is hollow. You are truly chasing after wind. That's truly a life of meaninglessness. So where does that leave us? Well, I bet you think I'm gonna tell you that instead of pursuing pleasure, you should go to church a lot and become religious and listen only to Christian music and wear pleated pants and stay home on Friday night and not have fun and pray all the time. That's what you should do. Yes, I agree. That's what you should do. No, (laughs) y'all. No, no, no. Listen, a desire for pleasure is good. Humans are wired for happiness. God made us that way. We're wired for beauty. We're wired for happiness. We're wired for pleasure. Everything we do is driven by that. There's nothing wrong with a desire to be happy. And not only that, there's nothing wrong with all the things that Kohelet tries out to make him happy, right? When God created human beings, he didn't put them in a monastery. Thank the Lord. Where did he put them? In a gorgeous garden with fruit that was pleasing to the eye and they were naked, right? So everything, They're given good, beautiful things. All the things that Kohelet tries out are there in the garden. Sex, food, beauty, power, wealth. God is no prude. He created these things. He created us for the capacity for pleasure and he made these good things for us to enjoy. So what's the problem? Well, the problem is this. Later in Ecclesiastes, Kohelet will say something interesting. He says in chapter three, verse two, God has placed eternity in the hearts of people. And I'm not exactly sure what that means, but what I think it gets at is that somehow in the deepest parts of our soul, there's a gash, a wound, a canyon, almost something that has been there through the, like our primal roots in Eden, right? And it's, it's like a longing for meaning, a longing for transcendence, a longing for beauty, a longing for God that we... We carry all within us a deep canyon in our soul and the canyon is shaped like eternity. And nothing you can do can fill it. Like trying to fill up the Grand Canyon with a squirt gun, no matter what you throw in there, it's gonna stay empty. Humans at root are tortured, thirsty, empty souls longing to be filled. And what's so beautiful about what God does for us is that he yearns to fill us. So he says in Isaiah 55, through Isaiah the prophet, how long will you buy bread that does not satisfy? How long will you drink wine that makes you thirsty? How long are you gonna do the same things over and over in the hopes of bringing fulfillment? Come get nourished from me. Come sit at my table, eat my fare. Here alone, God says, you will be filled with me. Come and be satisfied. And then hundreds of years after Isaiah wrote these words, Jesus stands up in the middle of a busy Jewish marketplace and he cries out, come to me, I am the bread of life. The one who comes to me will never go hungry. The one who believes in me will never be thirsty. Jesus claims himself to be the fulfillment of God's promise to fill the canyon of thirsty, tortured human souls. I just think that's so beautiful. There's no way that we could get out of this secular frame. We could not get sad. We could not get back to Eden. And so Eden comes to us. 
We could not get back to God. God comes to us. Becoming a Christian means, hear me on this. I know there's some of you who are just seeking today. Being a Christian just simply means this. It means recognizing that you do actually have this deep canyon in your soul and that nothing you've tried to fill it with is really working and that God and God alone is the one who can satisfy that soul and that God has done everything. He's come beyond the sun. He's come into our hebel. He's taken on flesh in the person of Jesus. He's died and risen. He's done all of this to deliver us the deep happiness, the deep happiness that our souls crave. I love that Jesus says in John 10, 10, I have come so that you can have real and happy life, more and better life than you ever dreamed of. So look, there's nothing wrong with seeking pleasure. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be happy. Our main problem is that we are sourcing it in the wrong place that we confuse the created thing for the creator, that we confuse the gift for the giver, the the road sign for the destination. Don't stop seeking pleasure, y'all. Seek it harder. Look for a stronger source. Nobody says this better than C.S. Lewis. He says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. So where does that leave us? Well, let me just leave with a few little tips. First, here's what I would commend you to do. First, notice your desires. For any of you who have been through recovery and through the 12 steps, you know that the fourth step is called a moral inventory, where you essentially have to look at your behavior and what's beneath your behavior. And what is beautiful about it is because they recognize that every destructive behavior is driven by a good desire. So no addict ever sets out to destroy their lives with alcohol or oxy or sex, right? What an addict is after in the substance is the thing that the substance promises, comfort, relief, connection, intimacy, transcendence, right? That's, That's what we're after. And it's only when you can see and name the good desire beneath the destructive habit that you can actually begin to learn how to channel the desires to the right source. So this involves a lot of self-awareness. So I just want to encourage you, like when you find yourself seeking something this week that you know ultimately is destructive, right? Like you're turning to porn, you're turning to the bottle, you're turning to, you know, the the glasses website, whatever. You know, just just ask yourself, like, what is it it that I'm really after here? What's What's the good desire that is beneath this? Is it for comfort, significance, love, beauty? What is it? Channel your desires in a better direction. And then second, enjoy God, right? The second step is to notice that all of the things that you are looking for in the pleasure, you ultimately find so much more satisfyingly in God himself. Take time to consider how the joy or the hope or the comfort or the security or the relief or the escape that you were looking for in the gin and tonic, in the new restaurant, in the new fantasy league, right? in the new Tesla or the new outfit, the next date or vacation or whatever is actually given to you in Jesus Christ in an infinitely more satisfying way than anything else could ever deliver. Meditate on God's goodness. Delight yourself in the Lord. Satisfy your soul in him. Taste and see that he is good. These are sensual invitations that you would actually know and taste and experience in your heart and your soul, the length and height and width and depth of the love of God that you would delight in him. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, come and find out. Show up at Alpha next week. 
Figure out what we're talking about when we talk about a life with God. You know, show up at a parish group. But people are trying to figure this out together, right? This is the source of our true desires. And then finally, enjoy the good things of God. Christians are not prudes. We can actually enjoy life and pleasure more than anyone else because we know the source. St. Augustine, who you could say is the patron saint of desire, often said there's nothing wrong with loving wine or sex or art or music or beauty as long as you give it the proper place. The problem is not the pleasure. The problem is our disordered loves, that our loves are disproportionate, right? This is the same guy who said our hearts are restless, O God, until they rest in thee. So here's the thing, y'all. When you find your soul's deepest rest in God alone, it frees you to enjoy everything else without putting the pressure on it to give you meaning, right? If the canyon's already filled up, everything else is just gravy. And now we can delight in the smallest things like time with family or your kids, your good, a good cup of coffee, sun on your face. Like we can enjoy these good things of God without extracting ultimate meaning from them because we know the giver. We can enjoy the gift knowing that the one who gives them is the only place where our souls can finally and fully be satisfied. Jesus calls out to every human on the planet, come to me. Come to me and you will find rest and joy and satisfaction for your souls. And we can say in return, you make known to me the path of life in your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Thanks be to God. Let's, let's pray. Maybe you just want to take a moment to recognize something in your life that has become disordered. Maybe a, a, a desire for pleasure or something in your life that you keep thinking will finally deliver the meaning you crave. And maybe just let it be exposed and turn your soul to God and invite him to satisfy you in a way that only God can. Thank you, Lord, that you made us to be happy and that we are only ever truly happy when we are satisfied in you. Help us, Father, to seek after delight that comes from being your child, from being the beloved. And when we find ourselves wandering, turn our hearts back to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.